This episode of How to Win an Election is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the only major UK airport owned solely for community benefit. The airport is the major employer in the region, supporting more than 27,000 jobs, and its contribution to local charities are 20 times more per passenger than any other UK airport. To find out more about the UK's most socially impactful airport, visit lutonrising.org.uk. Let's get podcast done. Strike up the band. There's basically a market failure in coups. Anybody who's delivered a lot of leaflets will have strong opinions on letterbox design. I sang the solo of In the Bleak Midwinter on a Decca recording. Here we are again then. Welcome to How to Win an Election, your insider's guide to the huge political year ahead. I'm Matt Chorley and we're all back in the studio together again. Joined as ever by new Labour mastermind Peter Mandelson, Polly McKenzie, who's Director of Policy for Nick Clegg in the Coalition, and Tory Brainbox Daniel Finkelstein. Are we all well? Thank you very much. Very well, thank you. Good, good. Now, uh, we know that everyone loves the theme song. That's one of the recurring themes of uh, when people get in touch. Well, music, theme music, theme theme tune, a theme tune. Uh, and various people have sent in their own versions of the uh, of the theme song. Uh, and Chris in Barnet emailed in saying, I can play the theme to How to Win an Election on my head. Would you like to hear it? <laughs> Let, let's go with that. Let's go with that. <laughs> So it's quite it's quite hard to do. Yeah. Does anyone want to try it? There's a very yeah, yeah. there's a very interesting book about whether or not other people can can understand the tune that you're playing if you tapped it. So if you tapped it and did not tell us it was the theme tune, yeah. there's no way any of us would have got what it I was. I definitely couldn't. I definitely wouldn't have got no, it. But, but we I, would, totally because we knew, we knew what it was. But this book, Nicholas Epley's Mind Wise, is really, really good. It's all about whether we can understand each other. And what it suggests is that you think everybody knows when you tap something uh, that... Everybody yeah, knows yeah. what you're tapping, and in fact, nobody knows what you're tapping. And it's a, this is an analogy for the way that we all think that other people can read us and we can read other people, but in fact, we're really, really bad at it. Can we, we, have a, we, can we be without all Danny's theories? Can we, I mean, can we hear it again? <laughs> exactly. uh, I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry, that just sounds completely different, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like a kid playing with a stick. I'm sure he's a very nice guy. There are many different ways to win tune. an election. That's what that is saying. Well, it's 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 an extraordinary piece of audio. Well, if you if you want to get in touch because you can play the theme tune on a different body part, <laughs> uh, email us how to win at thetimes.co.uk. Or if you want to get in touch with any questions for us about anything that's happening in politics and elections, email us how to win at thetimes.co.uk. We look forward to what on earth arrives next week. Uh, so, this week we're asking how to deal with the ghosts of former leaders. Boris Johnson's back to haunt Rishi Sunak at the COVID inquiry. Keir Starmer is dreaming of Margaret Thatcher. How should a leader deal with their predecessors? Um, Danny, uh, if anything which reminds Rishi Sunak that he was part of Boris Johnson's team comes with a risk for him, doesn't it? Yes. Look, I think he has not dealt with this issue. And it occurred to me when I was looking at the cabinet list that he's now got, uh, which is, you know, David Cameron, Jeremy Hunt, Alex Chalk, Victoria Atkins, Gillian Keegan. Uh, He has got pretty centrist cabinet. Uh, He is therefore 
in some ways, picked sides, and yet he hasn't. What is it that holds him back from picking sides? Well, it's refusal to deal with what's come before him. He, he, he will not say where he stands in relation to Boris Johnson's politics or Liz Truss's. It's actually a bit difficult because in order to do that, you have to kind of establish where it is you think that Boris Johnson did stand. Because in, in many ways, Boris Johnson was actually the most left-wing leader of the Conservative Party since Macmillan. Um, and so you, uh, you know, you don't, you have, you have a great deal of difficulty making that judgment. But my view is, if he was going to give a direction to the Conservative Party, he had to deal more clearly with what he thought about Boris Johnson on ethical issues, what he thought about Liz Truss, which he did, after all, say in the leadership election on spending issues and position himself to some extent by contrast with his predecessors. Otherwise, every time he sort of says, I'm going to make a change, against what? Against, well, you know, he said 30 years and then he pointed David Cameron. So what is the against what is he making this change and what and to what extent uh, do we blame him for the policies that were implemented by the government he was a member of yeah. does he distance himself from them or not he hasn't made a choice about that for one reason or another whether it's out of politeness or it's out of confusion or i don't know what it is but i think it, it's a mistake it should be quite simple for sunak in a way because what johnson offered in 2019 was a mixture of sort of brexity nationalism and high spending socialism i mean he was a sort of national socialist in that sense i mean not in a nazi sense but, you know, he was a national i mean he was <laughs> just to be just to be clear, he was both nationalist and socialist. Now, both of those sort of are dead in the water. I mean, nobody is remotely interested in revisiting uh, Brexit. We've been through our sort of nationalist stage. We've passed through our Brexit therapy. And we've come through the other side. Nobody wants to be dragged back uh, to that. Uh, and we're in a deep fiscal hole, uh, which means that socialism uh, is not going to arrive anytime soon. So it shouldn't be hard for Sunak to set out a completely different sort of way forward and scheme of things. But unless he sort of removes himself, airlifts himself out of this sort of Johnson vortex, I just don't see how the public will view him as credible, viable, and somebody, you know, who's a sort of, who's born to lead. He just, I mean, perhaps he's just too big a problem in the Conservative Party. Perhaps they're just so divided and he doesn't want to ignite, reignite all those sort of tensions and spats and battles and it's not an option for him. But it's certainly, to my mind, if he's going to stand any chance of winning the next election at all, you know, hovering on zero probably, but if he's going to stand a chance, he's got to sever himself. He's got to separate himself from I, Johnson. But I, I think we... we easily get confused because Boris Johnson is such a big character between his personal and kind of deficits or problems and uh, and whether his political pitch was right. Because as Peter says, and Danny says he's left wing, I mean, left wing, right wing, it's a bit hard to pin him down. But there was that high spending, uh, uh, but sort of, and, and still quite socially liberal kind of agenda that Boris Johnson had. Um and that's not actually what brought him down with the voters. What brought him down was that he was involved in a whole bunch of parties and a whole bunch of scandals, which he didn't Lying, to, rule to breaking, yeah, exactly. chaos. So, yeah, some, you know, stuff like <laughs> that, right? I, I didn't want him to be the Prime Minister. But nevertheless, it was he was brought down by character faults, not by the failure of his political pitch. And I think what the Conservatives have struggled to engage with is that 
despite the kind of external factors that Peter mentions, that's still probably mm. the best political pitch for the Conservatives to have, slightly more... But um, how do you convert that pitch into policies? I mean, Johnson didn't succeed in sort of, you know, laying out and pursuing a coherent set well, of policies. The, I mean, he had a pitch, yes. It's the well, one I, I think, think I described. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, well, I, I actually would turn to the levelling up white paper, which is about 900 pages yeah, went long. Went nowhere. No, but exactly, it went good nowhere. white but paper went nowhere. But you're, that, that's not the point, though. The point is, it is a very coherent yes. political and policy pitch grounded in evidence and pragmatism, yeah, crafted by Michael Gove. But you're right, yeah, they didn't yeah. do anything, but that's not the yeah. same as saying there's no there's I, no way to translate I, the pitch into politics, policy. Agree. It's that they just didn't do it because, A, Why? they got distracted, and B, because, because of the next lot are, in fact, not in favour of that stuff. They're still lost in this sense of yeah. what... Because Boris Johnson's agenda fell. So what fell, are they in favour of? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, no, but I don't, all the many the things person. we could hold. Danny, Danny, come on. What are they in favour of? I'm not, I'm not going to do that because that's uh, that's divert us from the conversation we're having <laughs> into a long conversation about Tory manifesto. You can tell but me I, after. But I, <laughs> well, okay. But I, 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 I shall. I agree with Polly. I don't actually think. I think they did know roughly what they where they were going. There was a lot of dispute about whether it was the right direction or not, mainly because Boris Johnson was also opposed to the consequences of his own position. So we've got a very good example of this with the row about immigration. Everyone starts having a massive row about how there's too much immigration, the government does something about it, everyone then complains there's, there's, that means there won't be enough. Right? So um, people... And Boris Johnson was opposed to some of the consequences of his own policy. So, for example, he was in favour of big expenditure on infrastructure, expanding social spending and social responsibilities to things like social care, but also in, against putting up any of the taxes necessary yeah, yeah, to pay, to for, pay it. for it. Yeah. So, so this ended up being being a, dis, a, a dispute with Rishi Sunak, mainly about whether or not you could be that fiscally irresponsible. You asked the question, Peter, could he oppose... Um, Boris Johnson more explicitly? And the answer is, I think he's already paying the price uh, for the fact that he's distanced himself from Boris Johnson. He may as well get the benefit from it. He's not, <laughs> he, you know, he, in, other words, yeah. in other words, he's already opposed he's paying by... the price inside his own yes, party. Yeah, yeah. inside the Conservative Party, any price that Rishi Sunak will ever pay for not being Boris Johnson, for opposing Boris Johnson, for bringing Boris Johnson yeah. down. He's, he's paying that but, already. But he's ended so up he in the no-man's well, land. Correct, yeah, that's exactly that. what I'm saying. So he, he, what he's not doing is taking advantage of that. So he absolutely can, because he already is bearing the political costs of distancing himself from Boris Johnson. Um, and my question to him would be, well, if you're already paying the price, why don't you get the benefit from it in terms of a public argument? Because every public argument you try, the route runs through saying, we're not going to run the government in the same way. Um, it's not so much that you're distancing yourself from him politically, although there were certain issues so on, you know, on, on kind of rule but of law issues. Basically, Danny, you're saying that what Sunak's got to do is do a Starmer. Do st what Starmer has done to Corbyn, he's got to do to Johnson. Yes, I, I mean, he's got to disavow him, repudiate him, perhaps not cut him off completely yes. uh, at the knees, but and disqualify him from standing at the next election, which is an extreme, well, 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 an extreme mould-breaking <laughs> approach by Keir Starmer to his predecessor. Is it too much? No, it's not too much. It's uh, necessary, inevitable, uh, and exactly what the public demands. And what's interesting about it is that the party hasn't risen up in revolt against it. But I, you, you're, 
they're still not that simple, though, because what is he going to repudiate about Boris Johnson? The idea of governing like a sort of bear in a tea shop, he can repudiate that. <laughs> but um, the, the, the central proposition was actually well structured to bring together the coalition that won mm. Boris Johnson the 2019 so election. So Johnsonism without Johnson. Exactly. So, so if he's going to distance himself from that more sort of centrist, high-spending agenda... He, he can do that, but that, in fact, plays to the more extreme wing of the Conservative Party. Uh, and so that's doing exactly what Danny advised him yeah. not to do last week, yeah. which is to tack towards what might win you the election. He needs yes. Johnson without Johnson. But he, could, but, he could, but he can just make that argument. And what I'm saying is, I, I think, actually, relative speaking, it's relatively easy. Boris Johnson, in fact, has also been removed from Parliament in the same way that has happened to, and Starmer, uh, to Starmer and Corbyn. And Starmer took his time over this. The first shadow cabinet here, Appointed was designed to obscure all political choices to to appoint people who had no trace of of politics that you could tell in the background in the Labour Party. It's and then about sweep, half, a little sweeping. Down. And then and about halfway through, <laughs> uh, well, you know, it, it's a caricature of it, but I think it's reasonable. You're exaggerating and, to make a point. Uh, exactly. Yes. <laughs> uh, halfway uh, halfway through this, um, how does one cope? With I know. This? It's it's exhausting. Like, no, no, no. Come to he's the end. Very, I've begun to become he's, sympathetic he's, he's, to Gordon yeah, Brown over. <laughs> He's had a double dose of granola this morning, I think. It's enough to drive on bananas. (laughs) Anyway... Bananas and a small pot of yoghurt. You know, about halfway through, about halfway <laughs> through the Parliament, he yeah. did then... Then he, then he made a choice. choice. Just because we're talking about Keir Starmer and, uh, and Tory leaders, is he right to uh, say he admires Margaret Thatcher, Peter? Of course he's right to say that she was a strong Prime Minister who had a vision for the country uh, at, at, at one stage a fairly well-worked-out plan and some changes that would, in her view, benefit the country. Uh, why shouldn't he say that? I mean, what he wants to... Uh, but was it a bit... So we were discussing uh, this I mean, uh, yesterday. Not, Is it a bit try-hard, writing an no, I, I Love Margaret Thatcher piece in the he, Sunday Telegraph? It wasn't, a, it wasn't an I Love Margaret Thatcher. It was saying, this is the sort of Prime Minister that the country needs. I mean, that's why he's associated himself uh, with, with, with Blair, with Attlee, to an extent Wilson. These were sort of modernising Prime Ministers with a vision and a plan, you can argue as to to what extent each of them fulfilled their plan and realised their uh, vision, but they were modernising prime ministers and they were also election-winning leaders as a result. Now, that's why Starmer has embraced Attlee, Wilson uh, and uh, and Blair. And when it comes to Thatcher, Thatcher, and when it comes to Thatcher, he's not sort of embracing her philosophy. He's not endorsing all her policies. I mean, that is a matter for debate. I happen to think that some of the things that she did in relation to uh, the economy uh, were timely and necessary. I think she also... Uh, was oblivious to and indifferent to the many of the social consequences mm. of her economic is, policies. Now, that's my view. It, that's not necessarily Keir Starmer's view. But to say what sort of prime minister he's going to be, I think is very good. And incidentally, it's why Gordon Brown in, in, invited Margaret Thatcher into number 10, uh, a, a slightly sort of awkward uh, visit that Mrs T paid uh, uh, to, to Were Gordon. you there? I wasn't there, no, but I sort of followed it acutely on television and I felt acutely embarrassed by it because they all both of them look equally sort of awkward in the whole during the whole thing and it's why ed miliband also uh, also said oh i want to be like mrs thatcher of course what ed miliband wanted to do 
uh, was to do on the left what Mrs. Thatcher had done on the right. Ed Miliband once explained this to me. He wanted to, so from the left, you know, draw the centre ground of British politics onto his and the Labour Party's territory in the way that he believed Mrs. Thatcher had done for the right. And he wanted to be, he told me, I want to be the Mrs. Thatcher of the left. He, uh, my critique of Chris Keir Starmer's article was that he, it was an article in which he said he'd like to be like somebody who had a vision, uh, rather than actually <laughs> saying what, you know, which, which wouldn't we all, right? And, 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 I, and, I, and I, that, you know, uh, and I think uh, rather than actually set out yeah, yeah. what it was. And it's all, it's all out of the Tony Blair playbook, isn't it? When you were, uh, in 1994, uh, Tony Blair told the Times it was the clear sense of an identifiable project for the Tory party that I did admire. It is absolutely essential in politics. That is what keeps you going. Matt, this is, goes back to the discussion we had last week about leading deciding and dividing. You know, we were talking about how you deal with dissent in your party. You only encounter people who dissent when you give a clear lead, when you decide and take your party in the country, you know, with clarity and purpose in a direction. That is what Mrs Thatcher did. Like it or loathe it, that is what she did. And I think that Starmer is right to say that that's the style or model of leadership he wants to adopt as well. Well, in a moment, we're going to look at how other leaders that you've worked with have dealt with their predecessors. Do you praise them or do you bury them? We'll do that next on How to Win an Election. This episode of How to Win an Election is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is How to Win an Election with me, Matt Chorley, joined by our political masterminds, Peter Manson, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein. This week, taking a look at what you do about former leaders. Let's turn our attention now to some of the, the when you've had to deal with, when you've been advising a leader and they've been dealing with their uh, predecessors. We've just talking about um, uh, Margaret Thatcher, who obviously sort of plagued uh, John Major, who you advised, Danny, and then uh, William Hague, who you also advised. Here she is on the, on the campaign trail in 2001. Isn't the problem, Lady Thatcher, that William Hague um, isn't really up to the William job? William Hague is excellent. If you want to look at some people that aren't up to the job, you look elsewhere. There we are. Uh, how, Danny, how did you get on with... Because with, John Major, obviously, you know, she wasn't hugely helpful to him at times. And then, you know, it was obviously still around then when you were advising yeah, William uh, Hague. Okay, it, was, it, it was very difficult because we'd actually lost, obviously, in this huge landslide. And the Conservative Party did have to change in, in different, lots of different ways. Both it had to, you know, in my view, it had to sort of move towards where the electorate was, but there was also a big party handling issue on Europe. And every time you made a, a change and you wanted to say, you know, we're different, uh, therefore, you, you know, we, we're not the party that lost the last election, we're something else, you were obviously offending <laughs> either Margaret Thatcher or... Um, you were offending John Major. And then we also had Ted Heath, actually, as well. And there was a, a terrible occasion when they both turned up to the party conference. Uh, and, and, <laughs> what, you know, Thatcher and Heath? Yeah, and it was, it was the problem with it, with it also then was you had these big figures, both, you know, who'd been Prime Minister, and the, 
the leader of the opposition had not been. So you also were in danger of being overshadowed and uh, letting them set the agenda. It was a, quite a hard problem to solve for some time. And actually, uh, it's not surprising that the Conservative Party only managed to begin to move on when the leader of the Conservative Party, David Cameron, didn't actually have to refer back to any previous um, leaders because he was sort of from a next generation. And I think that's probably also true with Tony Blair, Peter will, will say. No, I think that's true in a sense. But what Tony did, uh, he didn't sort of simply distance himself from his immediate predecessor. He sort of, broadly speaking, excommunicated every previous leader of the Labour Party from his wholesale modernising project. I mean, what he said at the time was that the problem with the Labour Party was that it spent all its time negotiating with its past. And he wanted to end that. He wanted to represent something that was completely different in the Labour Party. He was certainly uh, very strongly believed in the Labour Party as a party of conscience. I mean, its values, the way in which the Labour Party is I mean, central to its whole sort of ethos and being is standing up for the poor and disadvantaged and the dispossessed in society. But it also, in Tony's view, had to be a reforming party. And because of our history, because of our roots, because of our trade union origins, he felt uh, that we were completely hampered. We were, uh, sort of every leader was cramped in his or her style uh, uh, by this uh, history. And he was going to sort of up, uproot <laughs> this history. Now, that actually gave me a bit of a problem. I mean, I was... Because you were part of that history. Well, I would, my whole upbringing was sort of belonged. I mean, my grandfather was a member of both the Ramsay MacDonald's cabinet and Clement Attlee's. He was Clement Attlee's da- deputy. We were Wilson people, you know, in, in, in my family, and in my upbringing. And my first job in the Labour Party was working for Neil Kinnock as his communications director. So I sort of felt slightly uneasy <laughs> about this sort of mass excommunication by uh, Blair. But I could see the point he was making and to demonstrate to the public that this really was something new and different, he had, in a sense, to exaggerate, to uh, make a point. And, I mean, Tony had... Tony's view of leaders of the Labour Party, his predecessors, they were either old-fashioned Labour who didn't stand a chance of winning an election, sort of foot and sort of obviously latterly uh, Corbyn, or they were plain Labour, who would benefit from the unpopularity of the Tories and could win an election once, but not necessarily again, or they were modern Labour. I mean, people who were really committed uh, to reforming and overhauling uh, uh, the country. And he put himself, obviously, very much in the third category. I don't think that we have seen a leader since Blair who has so obviously or consciously put themselves in the modernising bracket uh, until Starmer. I think Starmer does see himself in that way. He may not have thought it through fully or may not have sketched out every sort of last sort of dot and comma and cross the T's, etc. But there has been no leader since Blair... Uh, up until Starmer, who has seen themselves in that modernising mould. They've seen themselves either as plain labour or old-fashioned labour, and I think that's why we've lost. Uh, Polly, the Lib Dems who you work for have a sort of slightly different, because they don't have quite the same history as a newer party, but as a result, you've had, you know, Paddy Ashdown and then Charles Kennedy, who you first worked for. Sort of their... Their reputation, I mean, some people might even think they're still leaders of the Lib Dems. You know, they're, 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 their personal reputation hanging over the people who've come since. Is it more personality than, than policy? 
I, I, it's certainly true that uh, for Nick Clegg, for Tim Farron, for Ed Davey, they will always be presented with this light, but you're not as famous and well-loved as Paddy Ashton or Charles Kennedy. Uh, and none of them got to go and present Have I Got News For You and, uh, and, and you know, weren't quite that guy. So it's always a, an expectation. But when you're a third party, you're fighting so hard for attention anyway that, frankly, anything the media can do to just blame you for the fact that you're not in the media. They just do. They, they love it. Um, but it's interesting that, you know, these conversations are happening at two levels, right? You're talking about the inside Westminster version of this. How, how do you deal with the, the, the residue, I guess, of the, of the tribal loyalties and the affections and the rivalries that, that, that are still part of your activist community, maybe your parliamentary party, but also that, that the wider community. But then you're also thinking about how are you communicating to the public? Peter was talking about essentially using, irritating the party as a way of communicating a modernisation to the public at large. And in a way, I think that's what Starmer was doing with the article about Thatcher is partly he's trying to uh, communicate to the public rather than navigate the complexities of his internal party politics. When it comes to the internal party politics, I think what you want to get to is the ability to be as generous as you can, even about your rivals, if you want to hold your party together. We endlessly trolled through uh, Charles Kennedy quotes and Joe Grimmond quotes. Joe Grimmond was the leader of the Liberal Party in, I don't know, some past before I was born. Um <laughs> To to to, fit, to make people feel like you understand and are connected to the heritage that they care about. But, you know, that loyalty was really important, especially in a third party, because what you need is to mobilise your activists. Uh, I think very was, often it's a Joe, different thing that you need. Joe Grimman was leader until 1966, at which point at least... I knew he'd know. Peter, at, least Peter and I, <laughs> no, at least Peter and I did not have this problem, which is we may have had Neil Kinnock in your case, or Ted Heath in my case, but neither of us ever had to cope with the problem of Jeremy Thorpe uh, turning up <laughs> to our conference and having to explain that we'd probably moved on from conspiracy to frighten people. So the, um, uh, that was that is like a problem of a completely different order uh, when you have a leader like that. But, but even last, last, I was just going to ask Polly, but like the, the question of going into uh, coalition... Yeah. Because they were, you know, the, the number of well-known Lib Dems, yeah, actually having Paddy Ashdown, Ming Campbell, Charles Kennedy on board was probably seen as more important than a lot of your MPs who, who bluntly, the public and after the lobby didn't, didn't know who they were. Well, whose fault is that, Matt? Well, I did my best to bring attention to <laughs> Annette Burke and Dan Rogerson, but it probably wasn't enough. Ricky Younger-Ross? Richard Younger-Ross, of course, they're all um, there. Andrew George. <laughs> but the rest of the podcast could just be naming former Lib Dem MPs. <laughs> so you wouldn't, because we, we, we've got 16 minutes to go. I actually, uh, I got my job at the Liberal Democrats. Uh, they, there was like a quiz to see if you were a real Liberal Democrat. Uh, and you had to name Liberal Democrat MPs other than Charles Kennedy Lempe, and Lembert Opic. And um, so I just Googled it. And because I didn't know of any. Anyway, so I, I, I tricked. It doesn't sound like a very good quiz if you could Google it while were, you were doing it. Well, no, it wasn't very well designed. But well, hey, I figured, well, hey, I'm, I'm being employed as a researcher. I need to be able to in. do some research. They gave me the job, but that's obviously because I'm totally brilliant or something. Um, anyway, back to, <laughs> back to the point. Uh, absolutely. And again, it, it is partly about communicating to your 
your activists. You know, those were people who loved Paddy Ashtown and they were people who loved Charles Kennedy um, because those were charismatic leaders who had been on the doorsteps with them. And if you're trying to hold people together, you want to feel like this is something that the whole team is on board with. If you are endlessly picking apart rivalries and, and, and resentment within your party, you're not focused on the voters. Um, but also voters tend to get quite annoyed with that sort of inside Westminster bickering. And then what do you do when someone does decide to try and, you know, torch the past and distance yourself? Uh, let's go back to 2010. Uh, this is Ed Miliband in his first party conference speech. You saw jobs disappear and economic security undermined. And I understand your anger at a Labour government that claimed it could end boom and bust. And I understand also that the promise of new politics of 1997 came to look incredibly hollow after the scandal of MPs' expenses. And we came to look like a new establishment in the company we kept, the style of our politics and our remoteness from people. (laughs) (laughs) You look almost wistful there, Paul. No, it's just, it's excruciating. (laughs) Because, um, and it... Why no, come on, on let, let's be fair earth to would you let's do be, that to your Let's side. be fair to Ed Miliband. I mean, he woke up one day <laughs> and it suddenly dawned on him that he knew uh, why New Labour had been so unsuccessful, why it had failed to win all these elections with these huge majorities, why even under the onslaught, the Tory onslaught in 2005 and the fracturing of our coalition uh, over Iraq, you know, we were still able to come back with a majority of, of, of nearly 70. And it occurred to him that he had a completely different and much better idea about how to win elections <laughs> than anyone who had preceded okay. him. And Can I and, try to be genuinely fat? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you know, he, you had lot. So this is it, it's a harder problem than you're both letting on, right? In 2010, Labour had lost the election, so he did actually have to provide the public with the idea. Uh, we've listened to the electorate in that last election. Yep. We've changed. I mean, part of his problem, of course, was that I think he had uh, he had encouraged Labour down the route that helped them lose the election, and therefore what he what he was actually arguing for was to go further down that route. Right, so for example, because he was in the cabinet that yes. fought that election, so, so I was a close ally of Gordon but Brown. I mean, David, David Miliband was also, after all, planning in his conference speech to to say we made big mistakes and to 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 sort of take a fall on the deficit issue, which which was very controversial position. Even years later, people said Labour made too many concessions to George Osborne on on the deficit and shouldn't have done that. So to be fair to him, he was trying to solve actually not it's and that was exactly what I was referring to with William Hague earlier. It's it's a difficult problem if you 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 fought an election on a manifesto that you believe in uh, and you've been defeated, stro- you know, solidly, and you then have to say we've listened to that and we're going to change. And yet, obviously, you think the you probably yeah. think you were right and the electorate wasn't. What do you do in those circumstances, Danny? The only way in which we were going to win the two thousand and ten election and defeat. Cameron and Osborne and what they were planning to do to the economy and austerity and the savage cuts was by acknowledging that the deficit was large and our indebtedness of necessity following the global financial crisis was too great and that over time we had to take measures to stabilise our fiscal situation. That's what we needed to do. And if we had done that, 
properly, full-throatedly, and said, look, this this is the challenge that the country faces. This is what we've gone through with the financial uh, crisis. This is what we had to do to stop the rest of the economy following our banks over a cliff. These are all the measures that we've taken to stave off you know, depression uh, in our economy. But now we are out of this, we are on an upward, slowly upward curve, and we are going to start rectifying our financial situation. But would Gordon Gordon Brown do that? No, he wouldn't, because he saw that as too great a concession to Cameron and Osborne. And that's why why we were in the the muddle. That's why we were in the muddle in our election in 2010 that we were. Let's zoom out for a moment, right? So uh, my very first day working in politics in 2004, my boss, a guy called Rob Blackie, gave me a sort of lecture on how he saw what was wrong with politics. And he said, um, the airline industry will fight, compete with each other really aggressively, but they would never compete on the basis of our aeroplane is safer. Because as soon as you start people thinking about safety, you actually hurt the whole industry and everyone stops wanting to fly. Uh, And the problem with politics is we never take that kind of self-denying ordinance. We are always willing to take the short-term benefit of attacking the other party or the other people within our party. And we just absolutely destroy the brand of politics. And when we do it to our party, we destroy the brands of our party. And, And that is what Ed Miliband did you know, and, and what the Liberal what Democrats the Lib did post coalition absolutely. absolutely and that's sure. probably one of the reasons why it infuriates me because it's arrogance right it's absolute arrogance to imagine that somebody else is going to tell the positive story about <laughs> the good things you did for you yeah, yeah. and and for Ed Miliband to just say oh that everything Labour had done was wrong is mindless for the Liberal Democrats to say that the coalition was completely wrong. Of course it had faults. Yes, you need to show that you're listening. Yes, you show that you're changing. But you choose a strategic position to take thoughtfully and you remember that it is your job, your job to tell the story of what your party did. Especially when what he was proposing to put in place of new Labour was a sort of mushy, reheated old Labour that appealed to nobody. I agree with you. I mean, I think Polly's completely right. But what, 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 what you're both arguing, and I agree with it actually, is that what he should have advanced is a different critique of effectively new Labour, if you assume that's what Gordon Brown was. Um, And, um, you know, he was still, you would still be up there making a speech in which you were saying, we have made mistakes. You you cannot lose an election, particularly like 1997, and go go back and go back to the party conference and say, I think it's you, the electorate, that's made a mistake, and you'll kind of wake up to this in a while. mm. So you're going to have to have some criticism. To be fair... But it was the wrong criticism. To be fair to Ed Miliband, you could argue... (laughs) This is your new catchphrase. For a nanosecond. um, (laughs) You could say that the confusion started with Gordon after he succeeded to... Weren't you in the cabinet then? Essentially, I (laughs) came You were advising him then. (laughs) Thank you very much. Um, (laughs) But I was never able to resolve in Gordon's mind whether, you know, he was continuity new Labour or change from New Labour. Gordon could never resolve this in his head. Intellectually, he was New Labour. But the problem was that he saw New Labour more as a sort of an election-winning narrative than a a political philosophy with which to govern and run the country. Here's my alternative theory. It is Tony Blair that abandoned New Labour. Gordon Brown Brown stayed absolutely... uh, completely solid to the vision of Bill Clinton and uh, 
Gordon Brown and Tony Blair and the Progressive Policy Institute and the New Democrats from the middle of the you know from the middle 1990s from 1994 Tony Blair got impatient with that didn't think it was going far enough wanted more marketization wanted to to control public spending and um, he 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 wants to go beyond new labor and in fact in some way and was that also yeah. true with he Iraq? wanted to be yeah, he, he wanted to lead a party of conscience and reform and unfortunately every single reform that came along Gordon <laughs> wasn't keen on very good very good right let's do some of the questions that listeners have sent we talked about leaflets uh, last week when they're not they had their day polly you said the worst thing was a letterbox with a stiff spring yeah well christine's been in touch emailed how to win at the time Okay, says, uh, morning, Matt. The secret to easier leafleting is a wooden spoon. <laughs> it deals with those stiff springs, those brush draft excluded things, and of course, dodgy dogs on the other side. The wooden spoon has changed my life. I'm so pleased for Christine. Do you wish now you'd you'd gone out with a wooden spoon? I've, I've, I mean, I, I confess I have heard that technique from other liberal Democrats in the past. <laughs> there's lots of, there's, you know, the whole, like, discussion forums about this stuff. I've just pledged this is never the, to leaflet again. This no, is right, the right. first example of how we've actually made history and changed how people are going to fight and win an election. Wooden spoons <laughs> all out. Branded wooden spoons. It's actually a brilliant idea, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, another email, Alan uh, Dewey emailed in, says, how to win an election? Easy. Commit to ID cards. As Tony Blair promised in 2004, it would appeal to the majority, it would separate the offering party from their rivals and appeal to those wanting measures to manage immigration, crime, benefits, etc. Everything the electric seeks, the reason given by Blair. Easy peasy. Yeah, Danny. I, I, well, I, I think it. You, I could see that policy adding to somebody's offering, but it, policy, individual policy offerings will not win elections. Yeah. Even if they measure off the scale, uh, particularly when they're not... Uh, you know, it's not sort of like a big tax or something direct. Um, so I, I very much doubt they would solve the problem of how to win an election. And like every policy issue, ID cards have got plus and minus. I'm personally, I've moved much towards them, and and, and um, you know, I can see the argument for them very clearly. Polly, it, it, the card is not really the central piece of the policy it's the database i think there's a whole bunch of policy arguments both in favor and against and how you manage yeah. privacy but but danny's right sort of i will i will win the election and then you can have an id card <laughs> do you know just like where's the where's the personal benefit from that i, th I think the voter you don't think it's an election winning slogan I, it's I, a mechanism it's a yeah. mechanism to some outcomes I, that I you want how we can make an argument on grounds of privacy when our iphones hold now so much in personal information yeah. about yeah, us. Again, i mean my local supermarket probably has true. more information about but me they're not actually the government though? just on the question well, do you think it would be an election winning policy let's leave aside yes i do yes i do I think election it, winning by uh, itself not by itself no but as part of a program yes I do it will help tackle illegal immigration <laughs> and secondly it will just make everyday transactions in our lives so much easier if we had a digital identity there we are I'm going to get that noise that Polly just made as a ringtone <laughs> uh, if you want to email us you can email howtowinatthetimes.co.uk howtowinatthetimes.co.uk if you want to send your questions to Peter Madison Danny Finkstein Polly McKenzie and me Matt Shirley, this was How to Win an Election 